This is the 2018 Reseda Spring Study Day. Our speaking brother is Brother Con Mitzos of Australia. The theme for the weekend is Mary, the Handmaid of the Lord. This is class two entitled, The Virgin Brings Forth Her Firstborn. And it is based on Luke chapter two. And we'll ask Brother Con to come forward. Thank you, Brother Tony. Brothers and sisters and young people and friends, we continue now the story from Luke chapter 2 and the circumstances of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Luke chapter 2, and I hope you're there, we have the chapter opening with these words, It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And... That, of course, uh, precipitated the circumstances of the whole Roman Empire becoming, um, uh, obviously the upheaval was uh, significant, becoming all um, quite uh, uh, unsettled as they all determined that they needed to go back to their own original uh, town of birth in order to be enrolled for taxation, which is what the Greek has and which uh, we understand uh, is uh, the purpose of this um, this uh, census. So what is amazing is when we think of the circumstances uh, and the mag- uh, magnificent hand of providence that is at work is that this huge event was orchestrated by the Elohim for one specific reason. So you think of the whole Roman world now having a uh, having this census imposed upon them and the travel that was necessary in order to fulfill their obligations to the uh, Roman emperor, this all happened for one reason. That's because Mary and Joseph were resident at Nazareth and Jesus needed to be born in Bethlehem. So think about the way in which God works. We can see the Elohim have been busy while we've been asleep overnight in events that have escalated the preparation of the Battle of Armageddon. There is no doubt about the fact that we are living in such exciting times. And all these events that have have encapsulated all society, because in some way we're all related to the events that transpire in the Middle East because of the repercussions, all of that that is happening in the Middle East is also for one reason. There's only one very small remnant in the earth that God is speaking to by these signs. We are the only ones that understand what's happening. And they all are happening for our sakes. Because Jesus said, when these things begin to come to pass, look up. And lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. There are commentators that do uh, uh, articles and and analyse all of the world events. They have no idea what's happening. And they have no idea why. We are the only people that know why. And so there is a testimony there to the... I'm not sure why that's not working. There There was supposed to be a slide that said providence. It may have gone to sleep. Oh, it's all right. I've put a lot of people to sleep in my time. So. Okay, I'm not going to press it because that'll turn it off. Is there a sleep button, maybe? 
It's not critical, so. That's okay. That's okay, don't worry. It's not important. The slides are only headings. Maybe on and off. Can I keep talking while you're here, Brother Dave? Okay, so so the lesson about providence, uh, one of my uh, dad's favourite quotes, uh, and you'll know it, Romans 8, verse 23, 31. Sorry. Um, all things work together for good. To those that love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And I remember my dad, um, he passed away in 2012, so dad's no longer with us. But thankfully, my dad responded to the call of the gospel and brought our family into the truth. And uh, he taught me a lot of things, but his... Um, his commitment once he came to appreciate the gospel message in having to separate from family who were against us as a family because we had joined some queer cult that the family had never heard of and our family totally changed its dynamics and our circle of friends. We never socialised with anyone outside of Greek friends and family and all of a sudden we were going to this Victorian-style Australian community and mixing with strange people, not that I'm um, racist in any way, but <laughs> they're just different, sorry. <laughs> it's all right, my, uh, my daughter once in a discussion uh, when she started working in an organisation around the table about you know, their family and so forth, uh, she put it the best, and this is no word of a lie, this is what she said in describing her parents. She said, my dad's Greek, but my mum's normal. <laughs> so, so, but Greeks are different and Australians are different and we had to learn that this was the family of God even though we wouldn't necessarily have had a lot in common the truth made us feel more at home and at, uh, as family in the ecclesia than we ever had with our natural family and uh, so he drummed into me this lesson which I will never forget and I remember um, when you look at the life of Joseph if you've ever studied the story of Joseph and we're going to actually parallel the story of Joseph and his brothers uh, to the story of Jesus and his brothers because it's actually an amazing parallel but you know how God worked in the life of Joseph uh, and the life of Jacob and the life of his family, well, out of desperation, Jacob got to a point when the brothers said, we can't go back to Egypt unless we bring Benjamin. The man straightly charged us, we've got to bring Benjamin. Jacob didn't want Benjamin to go. He feared the, the safety of Benjamin. And he, in exasperation, said, all these things are against me. That's what he said. Oh, you've done well. So... Three? Three. Yeah. All these things are against me, he said. How wrong was Jacob? How little did he know that all of these events were happening for a good that was beyond his wildest imagination? Remember, Paul says that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Well, that happened to a man who said, all these things are against me. They weren't against him. And Paul says, we know. He didn't say, I think. He didn't say, in my opinion. He didn't say, 
based on my assessment of the work of God in the lives of the... He said, we know, it is a matter of certainty, that all things, all things, not some things, all things work together for a good outcome to those that love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. So the providence of God you will experience in your own life sometimes does pretty amazing things in terms of the impact on our lives. We're talking about a global phenomenon in this census, but sometimes our lives take strange turns that we might not always appreciate, but there is a purpose. There is a reason. And we might not always understand the reason at the time, but the hand of providence works in our lives, in every aspect of our life, for one reason. God has promised to save us from our sins. And Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that promise. And we can have therefore hope that when events happen that we can't explain, either in the world, we might not understand all of the implications of each of the particular things that happen, but we know the direction, we know the end game, we know where it's all heading. And Mary and Joseph were now coming to see how God was at work to make sure that all of the things that he had prophesied were going to be fulfilled, including the birth of Messiah in the city of Bethlehem. So, of course, the circumstances of um, this enrolling possibly is the reason why information was leaked to the Pharisees concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as not being the literal son of Joseph. And uh, if we have time, we'll look at uh, John chapter 8, because John chapter 8 is the challenge of the Pharisees against the legitimacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. They tried to expose him as an illegitimate son with an unknown father. Where's your father? You don't know who your father is, do you? We're not born of fornication, almost implying like you. And say we not well that thou art a Samaritan? And has a devil? You're mentally insane. So they tried everything they could. Perhaps it was that when Jesus was enrolled... He was enrolled as the son of Mary and not Joseph and maybe that's where the Pharisees, sneaky and crafty as they were, found out the information concerning the fact that Joseph was not the actual genetic father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be that as it may, they of course went to Bethlehem in order for the Lord Jesus Christ to be born. It was the place where David was born. We read of that in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 12. And uh, we learn there that David was an Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah. And it was also a fulfilment of a prophecy in Micah. So if you just come back to Micah's prophecy, of course, this we know was the subject of discussion between Herod. And uh, when he sought to know where Messiah would be born, uh, Micah 5 and verse 2 was uh, quoted. But you'll see uh, just coming to Micah chapter 4, We have uh, in verse 6, In that day, saith Yahweh, I will assemble her that halteth, um, and uh, I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast off a strong nation. Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, uh, even forever. And, of course, the term halted takes us back to Jacob. So I want you to be mindful of the story of Jacob, 
because that's the story that we're going to uh, uh, parallel. And if you think Jacob, natural Israel, and of course Jacob was the firstborn son. His, his uh, Greek name was James, but the firstborn son of Joseph and Mary is Jacob. And we're going to see the work in which the story of Joseph being the deliverer that came out of Zion to take away ungodliness from Jacob was actually a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ which was fulfilled in his nuclear family as a microcosm of its national fulfilment in the day when the nation of Israel are converted at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, the greater than Joseph, turned ungodliness from his brother Jacob and his family And the story, therefore, of Joseph and Jesus in their immediate families are paralleled beautifully in the Scriptures. And then we read in verse 8, Thou, O tower of the flock. And for those of you who are aware, that expression in the Hebrew is migdal edar. It's the tower from which the flocks that were kept for sacrificing in the temple, uh, the tower from which the shepherds watched over the flocks, it was the place which... um, uh, in the record of Genesis, it was a place where Benjamin was born. As Rachel uh, gave birth and died at birth, it was at a place called the Tower of Edar that Benjamin was born, the son of the right hand, a type also of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou, O Tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And picking up there the prophecy of Balaam, who uh, without wanting to prophesied concerning the dominion that would come out of uh, Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In verse 9, Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counsellor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labour to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now thou shalt go forth out of the city, thou shalt dwell in the field, thou shalt go even to Babylon, and there shalt thou be delivered. There shall Yahweh redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. And here is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a national mother. There was the nation of Israel. And Mary was to be a representation of this national mother that the Lord was born into. And we have therefore in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And these prophecies were being fulfilled as Joseph and Mary were brought into the region of uh, Judah and into the town of Bethlehem, where they were both from, in order for the Lord Jesus Christ to be born. Now we know the circumstances of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we just come back to Luke's record, um, we find, uh, as we know the story well, that there was uh, difficulty finding accommodation. And that is perfectly reasonable given the uh, amazing uh, challenge now that everyone faced in moving out of their own uh, Uh, abode to go back to their place of birth in order to be registered and uh, so as a result of that all of the inns were full and there was no no one there not even a relative could extend accommodation for Joseph and Mary 
and we find that Jesus was brought forth in verse 7 and wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but this is a, um, a prophecy, I believe, a fulfilment of a prophecy that was given by the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3. And I think it actually is quite amazing uh, when we consider just how this prophecy was fulfilled. And in Habakkuk chapter 3, and it's uh, at the end of the chapter, we have the word manger translated as stalls in the Septuagint version. So that's the reason why we're going here, because we find the word manger in this prophecy of Habakkuk. So think about the circumstances. We know that there's no room to accommodate the birth of Jesus in the city of Bethlehem. The only place is a stall where animals are normally kept. And the word manger either means the feeding trough in the stall or the stall itself. So what we're being told by Luke is that that was the only place that could accommodate the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why it could accommodate Jesus Christ is because there was room in the manger. There was room in the stall. And the implication is because there was no animals there, there was room to accommodate Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus. Now look at what Habakkuk says where the word manger appears here at the end of verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, I'm reading now from Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 17, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labour of the olive fail, the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. There's our word manger. Now if you think about all of those things, the nation of Israel is referred to as a fig tree. And the fig tree shall not blossom. Because that's a reference to the state of the nation when Jesus was born. And we know the fig tree was cursed by the Lord Jesus Christ because it bare no fruit as he came to the city of Jerusalem. Now there's no fruit in the vines. The vines bring forth wine and the wine is used in the Old Testament scriptures for the drink offering that accompanies the sacrifices. So there was no wine for a drink offering. Well, there was, there was um, the labour of the olive shall fail and the field shall yield no meat. So there's no olive oil and there's no grain. The word meat, meal, used in the meal offering, which was bread. So there's no drink offering and there's no meal offering. There's no bread and wine. The nation is bereft. Then we have the flock cut off from the herd. So there's no lambs for a sin offering and there's no... Uh, herd in the stalls. There's no bullock for a burnt offering. So here's the state of the nation. An empty manger. An empty stall. And who should be placed in that stall but a fulfilment of all of those things that the nation didn't have and needed. Because Jesus was the life of the fig tree and the reason why the fig tree would bear fruit. And he was the wine the blood of the new covenant and he was the bread of the meal offering and he was the lamb of the sin offering and he was the bullock of the burnt offering and that's why Habakkuk says in verse 18 despite the tragedy of verse 17 I'm going to rejoice says Habakkuk why are you rejoicing Habakkuk I'm rejoicing in Yahweh and I'm going to joy in Jesus 
That's why I'm rejoicing. The salvation of God. The meaning of the name Jesus. What an amazing way this prophecy of Habakkuk and the prophecy of Micah were fulfilled when God orchestrated events to turn the Roman world upside down. There was these prophecies that were being fulfilled. Never underestimate the purpose of God, even in world events, because God knows what he's doing. And ultimately, he will bring about his purpose. And that purpose is to save mankind in his son, Jesus Christ. And do you know, we should join with Habakkuk. And we should rejoice. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be the happiest people on the face of the earth? Everyone now is probably fearing the repercussions of the American strike on Damascus and thinking, so what's going to happen? We're not fearing. We're not uncertain. We are happy because we know the angels are signaling signaling to us that the coming of Jesus Christ is near. We've got every reason to be the happiest people on the face of the earth. Do we have afflictions? Do we struggle? Is life tough? Yes, of course it is. Why? Because God has cursed us. And we live out the sentence that God has placed upon that, uh, us. But we acknowledge his righteousness in that, just like Jesus did. But above and beyond that, we've got reason to rejoice because God has a solution for every problem that every human being has ever encountered in life if they would accept that, a solution in Jesus Christ. And that's a reason for us to be happy. Well, that's why when we come back to Luke's gospel, the angels appeared to the shepherds, the shepherds who were watching the flocks from Migdal Eda, the tower of the flock. And we haven't got time to go into the story. You know it well. So we're going to skip that for the purposes of following through the record. But bear in mind what the shepherds saw in the visitation of the angels who rejoiced at the birth of the Son of God. And why wouldn't they? The sons of God rejoiced at creation as they saw the work of God. And they saw that everything that God had made was very good. And they rejoiced in the accomplishment of God's purpose in those seven days as God rested and sanctified the seventh day. If they rejoiced at creation, how much more would they rejoice? And these shepherds who were guardians over the flocks to be offered in the temple sacrifices were given this amazing privilege to see the heavens open and see the host of heaven rejoicing and a promise of peace and goodwill that would come as a result of the birth of Messiah. And they were told to go and find this uh, babe in the manger, which they did. And uh, so let's just uh, move to, I just want to make sure I'm, um, move to verse 15 as the uh, shepherds now come and find Mary and Joseph in the manger. Verse 15 of uh, Luke chapter 2. It came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even to Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And there they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. The word saying there is the word logos. They communicated and preached and published the news that the angels had revealed to them concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can imagine the impact that this would have had upon Mary. And we read of that 
in verse 19, Mary kept all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The word uh, kept, the word sintereo, uh, means to keep close to oneself, to conserve or to mentally remember. All of the information that we see communicated to Mary, in this case now by the shepherds, was information that she treasured because to her it helped to appreciate the special nature of this child, the special purpose for which he was born. And she pondered these things in her heart to recall them as the shepherds told Mary that the angels of God appeared to us and here is what they said concerning your boy the boy that is born to you. The word pondered is a different Greek word, symbolo, and it means to bring together all of the information so that it can make sense and it can be brought to a, 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 a conclusion of understanding. So she kept in memory and she tried to meditate upon all of these things so that they could make sense for her to understand what was going on and therefore how she needed to respond to the circumstances that were brought into her life as the mother of this babe. And that's the same kind of thing that we need to do when we read the scriptures. When we're doing our daily readings, we need to remember. And often we don't realise that in Bible times, people didn't have the access to the scriptures that we have. They were expected to remember the scriptures and call them to mind in situations where those words needed to be referred to for decisions to be made or responses to be given. Committing scripture to memory is a very important thing. And it's good if we can remember key verses and scriptures because they act as Deuteronomy 6 says, as frontlets before our eyes and signs in our doorposts. And it's nice to go into Christadelphian homes where there's scriptures on plaques, on walls, because they're constant reminder to us of key principles. Where we don't want to forget. We want to keep them in the forefront of our minds. And we always want to consider the implications and conclusions of the information God has revealed to us. We don't just want to be Bible students that can understand the record of, of the scripture as a historical uh, record so that we know all the things, the facts and figures and the events. That's not what's important. What does it mean to me? What are the conclusions that I need to draw that make me a different person? How can I go away from this study and say to my wife, are we done here? Like we shouldn't really continue to treat each other like this should we really I mean let's grow up from today onwards let's determine that we are going to enjoy our married life and we're going to start by saying and doing kind things to each other or today should be the day in which we say to our brother it aches my heart to think that we're not reconciled whatever it takes However long it takes, it means a lot to me that we are not as close as we should be. Can we just sit and talk about this? Or today might be the day in which we say to God, I know I haven't been as close to you as I ought to have been. I've wasted so much time. I've just heard from your word that there is an, an important 
responsibility that I have in my marriage, in my ecclesia, with my family. And I need, I know, to pay more attention to the things that really count. We, we need to do that, brothers and sisters. And Mary struggled to understand, but at least she tried to understand all of the things that reflected on the kind of mother she ought to be. How would you feel if you were going to be the mother of the Son of God? Because Psalm 127 says, Lo, children are a heritage of Yahweh, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. So our children, those of you who are blessed with children, they're not actually your children. They're actually God's children. And God has given them to you and says, can you please raise these up for me? How do we raise our children? Mary pondered all of these things and the conclusions that needed to be drawn because she said, behold the handmaid of the Lord. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Just tell me what I have to do and I'll do it. And because she had made that commitment, she was listening with a hearing ear. How do I bring him up? Remember, that was the burden of the question that Manoah made because he didn't feel as though Manoah's wife was given enough information. And he wanted to know, how shall we bring up this child? How shall we order him? Well, Mary was the same. She wanted to know how he should be brought up. How could she fulfill her duty as a mother? And you think of that in terms of our children and you say to yourself, so if we are custodians of children that God has entrusted into our care and we're going to bring them up to be the saviours of the future, the kings and priests of the future age, how do we bring them up? And who is our role model? El Shaddai is our role model. That is the title of Yahweh that refers to Yahweh as a mother the strength of the nourishers and destroyers. And that concept is seen in the female of creation. Ail, the power of the nourishers and destroyers. The word nourishers comes from the word, the root word, the breast, from which mothers suckle their young, and the womb from which they give them birth. Here's Yahweh adopting a title, Ail Shaddai, translated as God Almighty, as a mother. And why is he the strength of the nourishers and destroyers? Because Yahweh, as the model mothers for all mothers, nourishes his children with spiritual nourishment necessary for them to grow up the way he wants them to grow up. And why is he a destroyer? Well, you look at creation, and the Scriptures bears this out. Which is the most ferocious beast of all beasts but a a female bereft of her cubs or seeing her cubs in danger. The, the, the scripture says, let a, man, let a bear robbed of its wealth meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. She's the most ferocious of all animals if her young are in danger, even more ferocious than the male lion or the male bear which are referred to in the scriptures. And they're the kind of mothers we need, brothers and sisters, not mothers that mollycoddle their children and keep them from danger and jump up and down when their little Johnny has been criticised and dare anyone say that Johnny isn't perfect and they jump down that person's throat. That's not the kind of destroyer that Yahweh is. Yahweh is a destroyer of the enemies of that child. And who are the enemies that our mothers are aware of that are praying 
on our children's minds. The real dangers that lurk out there that want to betray the goodness in that child by deceiving that child into thinking that if it gives itself to the world, it will enjoy pleasures untold. Where are the mothers that protect children from those predators? And those beasts that prey on the children to take them away from us, to take them away from God. They're the mothers that are like Ael Shaddai. And Mary knew that she had a great responsibility and she pondered all the things that she wanted to rely on to know that she was going to be a mother that God had called her to be. She was going to fulfill that obligation. Handmade, she said. I'm your bond slave. Whatever you say, I will do. And she fulfilled that to the best of her ability, even though it was difficult. If we just move on now to um, the record of um, verse 21 and the circumcising of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have five times referred to in this little section the fact that Joseph and Mary fulfilled the law of God. And so they, when Jesus was eight years of age, brought him to Jerusalem, uh, to the temple, so that he could be, um, uh, so that uh, he, there could be the sacrifices made in order for Mary's purification, and Jesus could be circumcised. That was legislated under the law of Moses, and Joseph and Mary were righteous people, and we can see them following the law of God. And it is important for us to understand that the law of God represented righteousness the righteousness of God to this couple. And righteousness is an important principle. If we just come to Romans chapter 8, it is important for us to understand righteousness in the context of the new covenant because that righteousness was taught by the law. And our Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law, was brought up by parents who observed the law in all of its ordinances. And you know this scripture very well. So the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to um, not read the first two verses, even though they are a beautiful context. I could even read Romans chapter 7, which is uh, its uh, broader context. But I'm hoping that you appreciate that context. But in verse 3, the law had limitations. It taught righteousness, but it had limitations. And the limitations was that flesh was not strong enough to fulfill the law to the point of reaching righteousness. And that's why God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that's why he was born of Mary. And for the purpose of dealing with sin and finding a solution for sin, condemn sin in his flesh. Why? So that the righteousness that God had expressed in his law might be achieved or fulfilled in us, so long as we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And the purpose of the law was to help distinguish in a Jewish mind the difference between what was holy and what was unholy what was clean and unclean, what was unrighteous and what was righteous. And that distinction was, is why Joseph is called a just man. And here we find Joseph and Mary fulfilling the ritual of circumcision and the sacrifices which were required under the law of Moses as a law-abiding family into which the Lord Jesus Christ was born. If we just come down now to verse um, 
24, we find that the sacrifice that Mary offered for, the clean, for her cleansing, as was required under, uh, under the law, was a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, because of time, if you just um, make a note of Leviticus 12 and verse 8, it's actually in your margin. Leviticus 12 verse 8 reads like this. Concerning the offering that a woman would make for her cleansing after childbirth, if she be not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her and she shall be clean. Now, in the... Um, in the uh, in the case of a person that was extremely poor and they couldn't afford the lamb that God had required, God made a concession. And this is the concession. So that's why Luke records a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons instead of quoting Luke 12 verse 8 in its fullness. Because those who would know Luke, uh, the, the Leviticus uh, ordinance would actually know that this verse tells us that Joseph and Mary didn't have enough money to provide a lamb which God required for a burnt offering and a sin offering. Burnt offering, as you know, a mother was taught she had to devote that child to Yahweh. 100% devoted to Yahweh. And a sin offering, she needed to understand that that child was born into human nature and that child, as much as she would like to think that it was perfect, was sin-prone and it was prone to evil and she would need to, together with her husband, raise it to correct behaviours that were natural to that child that needed to be changed and the law of God was the education by which that child would be turned away from its iniquities. But they were poor. And we might think to ourselves, if we were Yahweh and we were going to select a family to raise the most important son ever born among women, wouldn't you want to know that at least they were financially stable? Like, like, wouldn't you think that that would be like a basic fundamental need? What does James say when he, who grew up in this family, comments about the difference between the rich and the poor people in the ecclesia? Brethren, have not the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Because if there comes into your assembly a man with a gold ring, goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiment, you have respect to the person who's rich. And the person who's dressed in rags, you say, oh, just go and sit down here where you won't be an embarrassment to our congregation. Hearken, James says. James grew up in a family that was poor and he understood what it was like to go to the meeting without the clothes that others in the synagogue were wearing because they didn't have the, the money. They may not have even had money to buy shoes. They may have just had rags, that's all. James says, God has chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. That's James's reflection on family life. Just come across to Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6 because there's an exhortation here for us 
Because one of the biggest dangers we face in our world is materialism. We have much more than we need. And we don't understand what it means to be poor, like James understood, and like Mary and Joseph understood. When Yahweh required a lamb, they would go to the priest and say, I'm sorry, we don't have enough money for a lamb. We'll take the concessional offering. We're on welfare. That's, that's the best we can do. God still requires something, and they gave that something, even though that itself might have been hard for them to fork out the money for. However, here's what um, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Godliness, verse 6, with contentment is great gain. What a beautiful, pithy statement that is. To be content with godliness is great, great, great gain, great value. We brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. What are the two staples that are essential? Like, if you're going to draw a line and say, these are essential, the rest of the things are extras that are over and above, non-essential, what would be the two things that you would say are essential to life? Paul says having food and raiment, that us therewith be content. I don't know about you, but that challenges me a lot because I've got a lot more than food and clothing. So let us be very, very careful when we measure ourselves and say, oh, well, you know, we're hard up because dot, dot, dot. Paul and obviously the Lord's family understood what it is just to go from day to day and just to have enough. And Jesus understood that when he quoted the, the words from Deuteronomy to the tempter. Man shall not live by bread, bread only, but by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God doth man live. Let us be careful. And so Paul says, they that want to be rich, they that will be rich, they that have an ambition to be rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Because if we love money, it becomes the root of all evil. Jesus grew up in poverty. God organised that. God gave the custodianship of his son into a family that couldn't even provide what his law required as an offering for a burnt and sin offering. They had a concession that was made for those people in the nation that were subject to poverty. And Jesus grew up in a family where wealth and materialism was not a distraction from what really mattered. He had enough food to eat and he had one set of clothes. And there's a good exhortation for us concerning extreme poverty. Now, I've only got one minute. And so in that one minute, can I just summarise the words of Simeon? Because we obviously haven't got time to deal with uh, the story of Simeon and Anna in the temple. But I do want to just um, talk about Simeon's words to Mary in verse uh, 34 concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Simeon, so I'm back in Luke chapter 2. Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again in many 
of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. And that certainly was a prophecy concerning the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ would determine the destiny of people. Some people would fall because of him. Some people would rise again as a result of a relationship with him. But he was going to be a sign, the sign that God gave to Ahaz, which Ahaz despised and the house of David despised. The priests and the Pharisees and the elders also despised. They despised him on that cross as the sign of Emmanuel. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, Mary, said Simeon, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, I haven't got time to expand on that, but we are going to look at the five piercings of the sword that were words that the Lord Jesus Christ directed to Mary in order for the development of Mary from natural to spiritual in her relationship to Jesus Christ. And her life was going to be a microcosm of the many thoughts and the many hearts of the nation that she represented in the conversion, ultimately, of this woman and the nation to their Messiah.